Welcome to the Quest Express, your passport to immersive travel experiences and cozy conversations. For curious explorers who understand the art of slow travel, we're your go-to podcast. Every few weeks, we touch the heartbeat of a new city where we chat with artists, innovators, historians, and entrepreneurs who make each city come alive. The Quest Express is not just a podcast, it's your ultimate slow travel companion. It's an invitation to begin your own quest. Today, in our final episode with historical author Marco Gandini, we reveal secrets about a famous Venetian merchant, adventurer, and one of the world's first travel writers, Marco Polo. Let's dive a bit deeper with Marco and Marco, who are joined in a common purpose across time. One of the things that I learned about Marco Polo is that everybody seemed to know his name, but hardly anybody has read his book. The Travels of Marco Polo, okay. that's the title in English uh, of his book. In mm-hmm. Italian, it's called The Million, because, well, there are different interpretations why it's called The Million in Italian. Some have said because of a family name, which was a milione, because there were different branches of the Polo, and so he came from a branch called the Emilione, and therefore Emilione. Someone else said that probably because when he reported back about China and everything was in millions, <laughs> so they're starting saying, oh, in Emilione, the million. We don't know exactly why that name came to be the title of his book, because the original book, which we don't have, mm-hmm. has been lost, but was, uh, had a French title because it was written in Franco-Italian, it was Le Divisement, the description of the world in English. And then subsequently in English, the title was changed into The Travels of Marco Polo. So very little is known about Marco Polo himself. The book is not about him. The book is about the places that he visited. Marco Polo is often considered like an explorer. He was not an explorer in the sense that that's not the reason why he went to China. Because his father and uncle had gone to China before. Not something they had planned to do, but they were traders. They were a trading family. So Mm -hmm. they had also one of their brothers already living in the Middle East, in Constantinople or Sudak, which is on the Black Sea. So they went there to trade, and then they decided to go a bit further east. And then at some point, they couldn't go back because of war. So they went, they ended up in Bukhara, which is now in Uzbekistan, near Samarkand. And there they stumble upon emissaries for the great Khan that mm. invited them to go with them to the court of the Khan. I wonder how that conversation went. Apparently, they said that the Khan had never met any Latins, <laughs> and he was keen to meet some. So that's how this mission came about. Got it. So, so they ended up at the court of the Khan, Khan himself was very interested in knowing more about the West, about the Europe, about the Pope, about Christianity, about the other kingdoms, and they provided probably whatever information they had and they knew. So the Khan basically sent them back with a mission. He wanted them to take embassies to the Pope. Then he wanted them to take back to him a file containing the oil of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. I wonder why he wanted that. His mother was a Christian Nestorian, 
the Nestorian was a sect uh, that uh, sprung up in the early centuries mm -hmm. of Christianity in the Middle East, and they spread quite a lot into Persia and uh, as far as China. So there were still quite a lot of Nestorians living in those parts of the world, and Marco Polo in his books mentioned the fact that they were. Mm -hmm. So there were, uh, as well as there were Muslims living in some of the cities that he saw. So basically, the father and uncle came back to Europe thinking of taking this uh, letter to the Pope, but when they arrived back, there were no Pope. The Pope had died and was one of the longest papal vacancy. Uh, mm. There was no Pope for three years, so mm. they came back to Venice until they decided it was time to go back. So they started their journey. They went back to Acre, which is now in Israel. From there, they, there's still no Pope, so they ask the papal envoy there, or legate there, to give them permission to take the oil from Jerusalem, to give them some letters justifying the fact there was no Pope and they couldn't complete their mission. So they started their journey, and then this very man was elected Pope. So they went back to him, and so he gave them proper letters and one of the requests was uh, that he wanted also the khan wanted to have 100 wise men learned into christianity so to teach christianity hmm. in the far east so the pope the new pope couldn't find 100 people 100 <laughs> men there he found two monks and he gave them two monks, but because of war, the monks only went as far as the beginning of their journey in Turkey, and then they escaped and uh, went, so they never made it. So whereas the three Polos, Marco Polo, his father and uncle, did go all the way, although it took them three and a half years to get there, probably doing some business on the way, because had yeah. they wanted, they could have gone much more quickly, because uh, we have records of uh, monks that went from Europe or the Middle East before Marco Polo, who took two years to go and come back. So wow. there is no justification in a way for the Polos to have taken so long if they had wanted to go there more quickly. Were they married, any of them or all of them? Marco's father was married, but when he came back to Venice after the first trip to the, to the Far East, his wife had died, so Marco was probably living with some relatives, and mm -hmm. he was aged 15 at the time. The father stayed in Venice for two years. He remarried, and then Marco was 17 when he decided to go back to the Far East, and they decided to take him along. Information on the family is pretty scanty. The book doesn't say anything really about, about the family. So in doing your research for your book, where have you been gathering my sources are books, read, and I'm reading a lot of them. The internet, I've done a lot also on, uh, on websites, also mm -hmm. because there is so much poor quality information out there, so many mistakes uh, mm -hmm. everywhere, so a lot of things need to be checked and double-checked and treble-checked <laughs> to make sure that the information that I'm trying to give is as accurate as possible. And, and sometimes if I can't reconcile the different uh, sources, because one said one year and another one said another year, another year, so I either use the conditional or put a range of years or put around that year. <laughs> So yeah. trying to find a way to, to get around the fact that you can't pinpoint something. Also, the difficulties of sourcing sometimes things because often the spelling is different. 
in different different books because when it comes to transliterating from languages which don't use the Latin alphabet, the Roman alphabet that we use in uh, Western Europe, there are issues. When you go to Persia, the Persian use the Arabic alphabet mm -hmm. plus a few letters. Obviously, I mean, I can't read them. Or in China, they use uh, ideograms. So, so often the spelling is different. Plus, when you read old books, the spelling maybe a hundred years ago <laughs> was different from the spelling nowadays. So. Yeah. I spent quite a lot of time trying to pinpoint, okay, where this place is. And uh, right. I'm finding it on a map because it's built differently. Well, nevertheless, I'm sure that's going to be a fascinating read. In closing, is there anything that you would like the listeners to know about either Venice or Marco Polo or the history? Venice, I think it's a place where... It's nice to spend some time in, I think. Maybe it's more into my philosophy is I'd rather see a bit less, but go a bit more into depth of a new yeah. place that I visit, rather than just uh, go one day, tick the box, I've been here, and I know nothing about it. Sacrilege, right? I agree. I like to travel slow, and the what I've been hearing from most people is at least if it's your first time at least five days it's lovely to discover corners of the city and sometimes it's amazing because especially those people who look at their phones to look at where they're going yeah they might miss out on things that are in front of them they don't see them even me that I've been living here for now 14 years sometimes I discover things in a place where I walk past many times and never noticed because maybe I never looked up that particular mm -hmm. corner or because a guide, some, I've often been uh, joining guided tours, a guide might point out something on a building, a, a note or a little uh, bus relief or something and say, mm -hmm. wow, look at that. Never yeah. seen There's so much there to, to discover. Right. So let's pretend, let's pretend it's like 400 years ago and we just had a conversation, but it's because I was walking down an abandoned path and we crossed paths and I asked you a question about something, I don't know, um, uh, a trade, trade route or somewhere where my mother could be taken care of, whatever it was. Let's just say we stopped cross paths. We had this lovely conversation and we, we spoke for about an hour as we have, and then I said to you, and you don't have to share their name, but I, I'm just asking you. Let's say that I said to you, thank you so much, Marco. Who else should I speak to next in your village? Well, there is, a, for instance, an artisan near where I live in Venice, which may, who makes uh, masks. <gasps> oh! Uh, you know the, the famous Venetian masks? Yes. They are very well made. Of course, they are expensive because mm -hmm. they are they are a work of art, and it takes time to make them. I bought a couple of them over the years, which are not in Venice, uh, but they are in London. In one case, because I didn't like one of the colors used in one particular <laughs> corner of the of the mask, <laughs> yeah. I asked the guy, uh, given the fact that they make them. Would it be possible to change the color? He said, of course, come back in a couple of days and we'll be done. So wow. what color do you want? 
That's cool. So I wanted to be more sort of color scheme because it was the the sun and the moon mm-hmm. sort of uh, embracing each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, well, the green was out of place, and uh, <laughs> especially with the color scheme of my house. So it was uh, nice also because having met him before and having had chat uh, on a couple of occasions, I bought some friends as well and. When I bump into him in the streets, I say hello. And so cool. It's one of the things that living in a city, which is a village, mm-hmm. allows you to get to know some of the people locally, even though I'm not saying they are friends of mine, but right. uh, recognize them in the streets and can have a little chit-chat now and then if I bumped into them. Yeah. And then lastly, what is your favorite event that happens in Venice that you look forward to every year? There was a, an incredible festival. It's called uh, Il Redentore, which is called the Redeemer in English. It happens uh, on uh, the third Sunday of July. and uh, But on the Saturday night, there is a fireworks display in the basin of St. Mark's. It's um, at half past 11, the fireworks start off from barges in the middle of the basin. When they are up in the air, you can see all the reflections in the water. This attracts thousands of boats. A lot of people mm. uh, go out there on a boat or people crowd all the, the promenades along the seafront, along the lagoon front and uh, all the islands around them. It's a festival which d- dates back to 1577 when Venice was delivered from the plague. Mm. It was a two and a half years old plague. At the end of the first two years, the authorities, the patriarch as well as the doge, didn't know what to do about the, the plague. And so they made a vow that they would build a new church if Venice had been delivered wow. from, uh, from this disease. The church of the Redentore, which means the Redeemer, was built on the Judeca island. So every year at that weekend, they build a bridge across so that people can stream across to the island, which otherwise would normally get to unless you go by boat. On uh, There is a procession uh, on Sunday morning uh, mm-hmm. with the patriarch leading it and all the, the mayor of Venice, etc. And on Saturday night, there is this incredible party <laughs> of people getting together. It's amazing. It's an amazing display. If you can see by the water... The reflection of the fireworks in the water makes it really mm. uh, special, unlike, unlike any other place where you see fireworks. Yeah, I'll have to um, keep that in mind. And it sounds like a beautiful tradition as well. I would imagine they had a big one after our recent pandemic, did they? The, the year of the pandemic, 2020, the event was cancelled. Right. And then the following year... 2021, there were some restrictions. Uh, mm-hmm. They limited the number of people going down to the to, to see the fireworks. Mm-hmm. This year, the, the restrictions have been lifted. There, obviously, there is a heavy police presence because the crowd is such that I think this year there was something like 100,000 people who flocked to see it. People on boats, on the island, on all the hotel rooms that uh, look over that part of Venice. Well, Marco, it's been so excellent talking to you. So I want to thank you for your time today. It was great speaking to you. Thank you very much. Next week, we'll speak with our first native Venetian in this series, Luisella Romeo, a certified tourist guide since 2000. She shares stories and deepens the mystery of that 
orange gem resting on a blue glass plate. Venice. Venice.